0: Well, this apocryphal story, Uh, it might be about me or about someone I know, maybe it's about you or someone you know, Uh, but just imagine this, it takes place in a house, a very ordinary house, toward the end of the day, and a father announces to his son, it's time for a bath. And the son says, do I have to? And the father says, yes. And listen to me very carefully. Listen to me very carefully. This is supposed to be a bath. It's supposed to be a real bath with soap and shampoo. Use them both on your body an adequate amount. And the son says, I know, I know, I know. You tell me this every time. I know. Uh, You know, he's exasperated. He's exasperated in the way that verges on disrespect and rudeness. But he goes upstairs. And when the son is done taking a bath, stories are read, prayers are said. And just as his father is tucking him into bed and leaning over to kiss him goodnight, an awful odor comes to his nostrils. Your hair smells. Did you use shampoo like I asked you to, and then you hear that reply, those words come out of the child's mouth that, that have turned your hair gray or taken it completely. Those, those words, the son says, I forgot. Does that sound like something that could happen at your home? Did it ever happen at your house? Well, then you're, you will appreciate here where we're going this morning with uh, God's Word, because this is a passage of Scripture that we're going to read together this morning, and you might be tempted to respond by saying, I know, I know, I know, uh, because Luke is going to repeat himself again this morning. There are some things, apparently, that the author of Acts wanted us to know so well that he pounded and pounded and pounded at them repeatedly as he brings his book to the end. What does he want us to remember? Or maybe more importantly, we should ask, why does he repeat this so many times? Well, I hope you'll join me in the book of Acts in chapter 25. Some of you i have seen your Bible shuffling already, that or your Checking your email. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 25, please, if you would. Acts chapter 25. And we're, remember here, as we're going, we're coming into the landing of the book of Acts, we have, Lord willing, two more weeks in this book after today. And uh, you remember how Acts starts and the, 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 what drives the whole book. The Lord Jesus, at the beginning of the book of Acts, says... You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And uh, you're, you're going you're to testify about me. This is the commission that the earliest followers of Jesus followed to take the gospel, the good news about Jesus, all over the world. And uh, that commission, though, it's, it's, they're, they're very early into following it when they realize this is going to be very difficult. This is gonna, not going to be easy. In fact, uh, this mission in a hostile world is going to cost us a lot. Paul wrote in Second Corinthians 11, even before the events that we're reading about these days, he wrote about what he had endured while obeying this charge. He was scourged five times, beaten with rods three times, stoned, imprisoned, shipwrecked, spent a night and day in the open sea, went hungry and cold, and was threatened by bandits, among other things. Those were the Easy days before he was in prison. Jesus sent his followers out as sheep among wolves. He said, "You're going to have trouble in in doing this." Now, some of those warnings that we read, and we like in uh, First or Second Peter, or that Jesus gave, they sound a little odd to us because they haven't materialized in our country or in our culture. Jesus wasn't wrong. It's just we're a little bit of an anomaly in the world. It's it's unusual. It's highly unusual in the history of the church of Jesus Christ that no one in our church has been jailed or fined or beaten for being a Christian. That's very unusual. It's just weird. It's, it's, a, it's a situation that the New Testament can hardly conceive of. It's a wonderful blessing, but it's just very strange. This parenthesis of normality that we have in our own culture may be coming to an end. And it calls for clarity. What do we really believe? What are we really willing to suffer for? Do you know the name Baronel Stutzman? baronel stutzman is a florist in the state of washington she's uh, been a florist for a long time she's a follower of jesus and uh in the course of her floral business she met a young man by the name of rob and uh baronel and rob became friends baronel's a christian a follower of christ and rob knew that and rob is gay and not and and baronel knew that uh that didn't hinder their friendship. They both like to talk about florals and floral design and things involved in that. And uh, Baronel over the years designed a lot of floral arrangements for Rob uh, for uh, birthday parties and things that he was hosting. Well, one day Rob came into the shop and asked Baronel if she would do the flowers for uh, Rob's wedding. He was going to marry his boyfriend, Kurt. And uh, Baronelle thought about it for a a few days and she sat down with Rob and said, "Um, you know that I'm a follower of Christ and I I think the Bible teaches us very clearly about what marriage is and I just can't design these flowers for your wedding. I can in good conscience lend my creative skill to this event. So I'm very sorry. You'll have to find somebody else. Let me recommend. Here's the three of my friends. They're great florists. They'll do a wonderful job for you. Um, so, uh, but I, I won't be participating. Rob gave her a hug, thanked her for her honesty, walked out of the store, and uh, two or three weeks later sued her. So um, Rob and Kurt sued Baronel, and then actually the state of Washington got involved and fined her significantly for this, $100,000 or more for, for this. So Baronel is suing the state of Washington over this. You're going to hear... You're going to hear this case move through the court. She lost once. She's appealing again. Um, Is what she believes about the Bible's teaching about marriage worth suffering for? Here's another example of this. Uh, we have in our congregation a young man, uh, John Belts. He dreams of entering, uh, spending life in the academy, studying the ancient world and languages with his eye on the Bible. It is much easier to move in those academic circles and be promoted in them if you don't actually believe what the Bible teaches. It's much easier. Uh, if, if you don't insist that it, it's true, and it's tempting, in fact, it is, it's easy to let certain things go, to let certain convictions slide for the sake of, of your advancement, for the sake of your livelihood, just to let certain mm, convictions, e- just ease off on them a little bit. I wonder if, if that's true in your career, if there's things that, uh, there's pressure that, uh, on you to let things slide in, in your career. One of the places you can find clarity about things you can let go and things that you can't is in a courtroom, right? And for the last several weeks, we've been with Paul in a courtroom. He's been on trial four different times. This is the fifth trial that we're going to look at this morning in the book of Acts. It's the longest. It's the most detailed one. In fact, it's the climax of the book of Acts. This is Paul's final opportunity to unfold Christianity and the story of his participation in it. And Luke recorded it. Because he thinks that we'll need it one more time. Again, from the top, here's what it means to fulfill the mission in a hostile world. What is it that we really believe? What's really worth suffering for? I want to I surface from this passage six, six characteristics of our faith. There, there's more truths than that in the Bible, but six things that are true about Christianity. Some of them we've seen before, remember? You know, you know, you know. We've seen some of these things before, but this, this in the hostile world, in an increasingly hostile world, is what is crucial for our mission. So let's begin by reading the text, and then uh, we'll, we'll begin here. Uh, it's going to help set the context. Um, Paul's in jail. He's been in prison for two years uh, under Roman custody. There's a newly Roman appointed governor. His name is uh, uh, Felix is the new, uh, Festus, it's not Felix, Felix was last time, Festus, I get them confused, and when I was typing Felix over and over again in my computer, I kept writing Feliz, Feliz, the Mexican Roman governor, so uh, Festus is actually, Festus is the man we're talking about today, Um, now Festus has just taken over. He's going to have a trial. Uh, while he's going to have the trial for Paul, though, a, a neighboring king comes and visits. His name is Agrippa, King Agrippa. And uh, Agrippa is a, a descendant of Herod. We read about Herod the Great this morning, who was king when Jesus was born. This is his great-great-grandson, Herod Agrippa. And he's Herod Agrippa the second. His father was Herod Agrippa the first, and he died in Acts 12. And now Herod Agrippa II has gotten together with Festus. Herod Agrippa is an interesting person. He um, Two things that we know about him extra-biblically. One, he was apparently very pious and loved the Old Testament. He was had Jewish roots and uh, took the Old Testament very seriously. And the second thing that we know about him, very strange to me, is that Bernice is not his wife, Bernice is his sister, and there were persistent rumors rumors in the ancient Roman world about an inappropriate relationship between Agrippa and Bernice. Two things you would not think would go together, this piety and this scandalous relationship. But here they are. Let's start reading Acts 25, verse 13. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There's a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges." When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes that I expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss as to how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal... To be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, Tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high ranking military officials and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Now we'll stop there just for a minute here. Notice this opportunity Paul has to address all of these very important rulers in Judea. What a, what a privilege for him. In Acts, earlier in Acts chapter 9, uh, Jesus had said to Paul, you will have an opportunity to testify about me before kings. And here it's being fulfilled. He's got quite the audience. Let's keep going. Verse 24. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man... The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write, for I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. So that's the beginning of the trial. Look how the trial ends at verse 30 of chapter 26. Okay, skip down to chapter 26, verse 30. All right, the trial is over. And the king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with him, after they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So here's the first characteristic of Christianity that I want to unfold from this text. First of all, you've heard me say this before, Christianity is not a threat to the state. Christianity is not a threat to the state. It's the third time that we've talked about this. It comes up over and over in the book of Acts. It's a crucial foundational thing. Luke wants you to know this. He wants his readers to know this. They're about to experience official persecution from the Roman government, and he's telling them, he's reminding them, Christianity is not a threat to the state. It begins, we, we know this from the text because this is how Luke communicates this. At the beginning, Festus can't figure out what to do with him. I, I, no charge. I, I don't know what to write about him. And at the end, both of them say, Festus and Agrippa agree together. Well, he could have been set free. There's nothing. There's no reason to keep him here. Paul's innocent. Christianity's not a threat to the state. Um, in fact, there's two guilty parties in the text. The first guilty party is the Jews who keep bringing all these accusations against him. They're guilty of this outrageous persecution, prosecution. And the second party that's guilty in the text, actually, it's Agrippa and Festus, isn't it? They know he hasn't done anything wrong. They can't find any charges against him, and they're not willing to set him free. It's not as if, verse 32, it makes it sound like it, verse 32 makes it sound like it's not as if Festus and Agrippa say, well, we let him go, but he appealed to Caesar. There's nothing we can do about that at all. No. (laughs) You have the authority to tell him just to go. You can set him free. Christianity is not a threat to the state. At least we've discovered it's not a threat to the government, a government interested in pursuing justice. There are governments that are not pursuing justice. The state of Washington thinks that Baron L. Stutzman is a threat, that her uh, convictions in her flower business threaten public order. Uh, she's suing. It's her right as a citizen to, to do that. Uh, followers of Christ have done this they pushed back against governments who mistakenly think that Christianity is a threat what's interesting is that after Paul was set free from this trial here in in Caesarea that he had he wrote about this he wrote about how Christians live in a state where they might feel threatened listen to what he wrote in first Timothy 2 you don't have it on your sheet but listen to what it says Paul wrote this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, pray, pray, Paul says, for kings and all in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That's our focus, quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and all holiness. It's our focus, it's how we live. Being a follower of Jesus makes us better citizens. It makes us better employees. Because of Jesus, be careful how you push back. Peaceful and quietness in godliness and holiness. I, I think Paul writes those words because he, he, he wrote elsewhere, our kingdom, the kingdom that we belong to, the kingdom of Christ, is not of this world. We have a higher allegiance to jesus than to any other institution organization or or, or body in this world doesn't mean that we don't vote doesn't mean that we we can't work for the government or enlist in the military or or anything like that but our highest allegiance our highest allegiance is to him Jonathan Lehman wrote this week that your uh, actual political party affiliation, regardless of where you live, is to your local church first and foremost. It's your highest, first place of of, of loyalty is to Jesus and His kingdom. We remember, we we live peaceful and quiet lives because, and you're going to hear this at least one time during the month of December, right? Because Handel wrote it down. Uh, The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's why Christianity is not a threat to the state. So, So don't act like it is. Don't act like like your highest loyalty is to uh, um, your political party or your governor or the Second Amendment. Christianity is not a threat to the state. Just Don't respond to a confused state by being an obnoxious Christian. All right, let's move on here. Now second, we notice Paul's argument as we move through. Christianity is the culmination of God's promises. To the culmination of God's promises. It's so another theme that we have seen in these chapters, and Paul emphasizes it as he talks about his own testimony, uh, and, and he talks about his own relationship with Jesus. We're going to read the first eight verses of chapter 26. Look what it says. Chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself... Fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise of our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly served God night day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises that God raises the dead? Now look down at verse 22, verse 22. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. The message that Paul preaches is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Resurrection from the dead. Resurrection from the dead. I listened to an interview um, uh, actually, it was, a, it was a podcast I was listening to, and they were talking about a particular cemetery in Brooklyn, a very famous cemetery in Brooklyn. It's very expensive. And they were talking about how expensive it is to be buried at this cemetery. And one of the things that they're doing in the cemetery, I suppose to save costs, is they're um, uh, burying coffins on top of coffins. So you can buy one, one plot and bury down deep. And, and uh, they, uh, somebody said, well, I don't want to be on the bottom of that pile. Uh, and another person said well I, I suppose it depends on what happens what you believe is going to happen to you where you're buried and and one of the commentators if you're rational she said if you're rational you know nothing's going to happen to you hmm. resurrection from the dead paul is preaching this and the jews are opposing this they're opposing it not because it's new in fact it's the opposite. This promise of resurrection is very old. It's in, with keep, in keeping with the very first promises that God has made. In fact, this story that Paul is telling is the story toward which all of history is moving. It's, it's consistent. It's consistently part of God's plan as it has been from the beginning. We talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, do, you know, do you know what I'm, I'm talking about if I, I mention an inflatable punching clown? You know what that is, right? Okay, um, it, has, it has a rounded bottom on it and it's weighted and and uh, if, you, if you're having fun and, and you hit the inflatable it, it, You'll knock it down, but it will always come back up and I, Don't do this, but it's really funny If you set this in front of little children and they hit it and they don't know that it's coming back Bam, right it hits them in the head. Don't do that Video it if you do and show it to me, but don't don't do that It's not right it's always coming back up. It is always coming back up. The Bible's story about Jesus, because it is part of God's plans and always has been, is an ever-returning, never-completely-knocked-down message. Some people think that they have pushed it out, that they, that they buried it, they left it in the past. Do you know anybody like that who thinks, well, I've just gotten rid of that here, it's, it's over? But it's the arc of history, and it always has been, and it is always coming back. What this means, what this means is that whenever we call anyone to conform to the Bible's vision for life, we are actually calling them to conform to the fabric of the universe and what will someday very clearly be normative. So Ryan, at the beginning of our service, he calls us to worship. Oh, come let us adore him. He's calling you. He's calling you to stop for the moment that we're here worrying about how much turkey you ate over the weekend. And he's calling you to stop thinking about the Christmas presents that you still need to buy. And he's calling you to stop thinking about how unpleasant your cousin Gary is and how you wish you hadn't spent the weekend with him. He's calling you to forget about those things and for a moment to adore him. Do you know why? The, the, every Someday, that's what we're going to be doing. It will be part of, clearly part of the fabric of the universe. We will be adoring him easily, gladly, joyfully, every day, all day. This is what we'll be doing. And when Ryan calls you to that, he's calling you to where the arc of history is moving. When, when your growth group leader and joins you and he says, let us love one another someday, Love is going to be the whole consistency of your relationships with one another. You are moving inexorably and inevitably toward a world of adoration of God and love for other human beings. Creation is connected to God like a bungee cord, and it may be stretching away, running in the opposite direction, but someday that cord is going to snap back to him. The arc of history is moving towards this message. It's the fulfillment of the promises of God. And things are going to be put back in their place someday. Now third, Christianity is rooted in actual events. It's rooted in actual events. Events. Now look here. Paul is beginning. This is the opening argument, and if he had to, Paul is making references to witnesses that he could come and testify about the factual uh, basis for his argument. He he could line up the facts with witnesses. Well, he starts with the scriptures. This is fulfillment of God's promises. Then he mentions those who knew him when he was growing up. They can testify about how I was a a Pharisee, and and they saw me, how I lived in Jerusalem. Then then there's those witnesses who saw him fight against the teachings of Jesus, actual historical events. Look at verse 9 here of Acts 26, all right? Verse 9, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of the journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commissioning of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Who is it that appears to him? It's the Lord Jesus himself. Here's the key issue in Paul's whole trial, his whole testimony. Jesus is alive. Paul believes that Jesus is alive. He believes Jesus is alive because Jesus appeared to him. Christianity is rooted in actual events to which there are eyewitnesses. And in Paul's uh, own case, his own eyewitness account. Christianity is not a philosophy, merely. It's not merely a worldview. It's a report about a historical event. And by this, Christianity is distinguished from all other faiths. I've mentioned this before. remember D.A. Carson, he said this. Um, The canonical teachings of Buddhism are collected, and they're called the sutras. Uh, They're supposedly the actual words of Buddha. But Buddha himself is not integral to the sutras. In fact, the the teaching of the sutra could come from any other um, ethical, mystical teacher. Buddha is not intrinsic to them. Same thing with, with Islam. Muhammad is the greatest prophet in Islam. He is the one who delivered the Quran. But Allah could have chosen another prophet other than Muhammad to give us the Quran. He did not... If you're ever talking to a Muslim about this, this hypothetical will be very difficult um, because it will sound like you're denigrating Muhammad. Allah could have chosen another prophet. He didn't other than Muhammad to, to reveal the Quran. Moses is the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. But God could have given his law through another prophet other than Moses. But Christianity itself without Jesus... Without the, without him, without the event, events of his life and death and resurrection, Christianity without Jesus is nothing. Now Paul's actually pressed about this by Festus at the end of the trial. Look at verse twenty-four. He says this. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. "You are out of your mind, Paul," he shouted. "Your great learning is driving you insane." Verse 25, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is, Agrippa, the king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Christianity is rooted in historical events. Now number four here. Christianity grows through the ministry of the apostle Paul. Christianity grows through the ministry of Paul. Look back with me here at verses 16 and 17. We usually don't talk about Paul in this sense, but it's worth doing this morning. Paul emphasizes it, verse 16. Jesus is speaking to him. Now get up, Paul, and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them. To open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, so that you may receive, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Me. It's interesting here. Paul uses this word: "I am a servant and a witness." Acts one eight. You shall be witnesses. I'm I'm a witness. I'm doing what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. Paul's the greatest witness in the book of Acts. And we have actually in this book 13 letters that he wrote in the context of him fulfilling this mission that Jesus has given. We study Paul. We scrutinize what Paul has written. And Paul did it all under the commissioning of the Lord Jesus himself. It's interesting, if you don't have to get very far into New Testament studies before you'll find. It's very vogue. It's a very uh, popular idea to try to find the ways in which Jesus, uh, Paul, rather, changed what Jesus said or changed what Jesus believed. Jesus loved everybody, but Paul was the woman hater, which is why he wrote all those terrible things about submission in his letters. You know, Paul's changing the things that Jesus, that's not true. Jesus, Paul is working under the commission of the Lord Jesus. One is the master, one is the servant. And we give ourselves over to studying Paul in part based on this commissioning that Jesus himself mentions here. Now fifth, slightly different direction. We're going to go in a different direction this morning. Five, Christianity makes religious people angry. Christianity makes religious people angry. It's actually part of Paul's testimony. We've read two things about him. Two things we know about Paul from this. Number one, he was a very religious person. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He followed every religious rule that there was. And the second thing we know about him is that he was angry. Very angry. He was murderous. He was violent. He forced people to blaspheme Christ. He was kicking against the goads. A reference to uh, an ox kicking against the, the pointed parts of the plow because the ox is angry that he has to plow the fields. It's self destructive anger, isn't it? You hurt yourself when you kick the goads. But he's angry. Now, how do these two things go together? Paul's piety and Paul's anger. Or what was it about the, the message of the Lord Jesus that made Paul so angry? The book of Philippians seems to tell us before Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul was committed to earning and establishing his own goodness, to building his own life around his own ability to be right, to do good, to perform all the good deeds that God would ever want him to do. He was going to build a good life himself. But the message of Jesus is completely opposite to that to that own self-building project. Look at verse 17 again. It says, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is not a status to be earned. It is a gift to be received. Christianity is an affront to everyone who wants to prove to themselves or to other people that they're good enough. That they're wise enough or strong enough or clever enough or kind enough on their own. See, in contrast to that, the Bible's diagnosis of you is that your life is darkness. It's under the power of Satan. It's a life of sin. It's not inclined toward God, but a life inclined away from him. And there's no amount of good deeds that you can do to, to fix this on your own. There's a website uh, online. It's called The Experience Project. It's had 36 million viewers as of uh, last January. And uh, visitors to the site, you're supposed to go on, and there'll be questions that you can answer, questions about um, uh, ponderous things, like where does lonely, what does loneliness feel like? You can write a little bit about it. Or what do you... Uh, Who do you spend time with? Or things like, what is your favorite pastime? Well, one in one post on one particular day, readers were asked to respond to this sentence. I prefer darkness over light. Here's what a young woman wrote about this. She uses the screen name Beyond Repair, which should give you some insight here. She says this I prefer darkness over light. The darkness allows me to hide who I am and what I truly feel. In the light, all things have a chance to be revealed. Darkness makes it easier to hide. In the dark, you cannot see what is coming next. The darkness is a place where you can lose yourself. Lost in the dark is a great place to be because then you are free from where you were and can be what you want. The darkness is bliss. The darkness, according to this passage, is condemnation. It's loss. Death. The gospel is a message about the risen Lord Jesus, the one who came and died on our behalf on the cross for our sins. The book of Proverbs says, By mercy and truth, sin is atoned for. Jesus is the one who knows you better than anyone else. He knows the things that are true about you in the darkness that you don't want anybody else to know. Jesus knows those things about you and yet he has come to atone, pay the penalty for those sins, that darkness. And Christianity is the invitation to leave behind our own sinfulness and to turn to Jesus for forgiveness and life, and your life will be different. This religious life that Paul had led where he expected, where he expressed his own discipline, his own self-control, his own self-definition, his own self-will, For some of you, that's a very attractive life because that's the way you want to get things done. That's why you want to accomplish things. You want to accomplish things by being a good person. It's very satisfying. You're in control. You you think that that, uh, 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 that, that's the best way to build a life. It's especially attractive, I think, for people who are second-generation Christians, people like me who grew up in homes where you heard the gospel, good church kids who do what good church kids do. And I could be a good church kid. I listened to an interview with Darren Patrick not too long ago, and Darren Patrick leads a church in the Midwest, and he was asked this question. He was asked, what would you go back and tell your 20-year-old self? If you could go back and tell your 20-year-old self anything you want, what would you tell him? I was surprised by his answer. He said, I would want my 20-year-old self To make sure he is actually saved. Actually a Christian. I would want my 20 year old self to know and experience. The sweetness of forgiven sin. The the taste of it. That there would be regular joyful reflection. On the sweetness of forgiven sin. Not. Not. Not merely the weight of being a good person because I'm a good person and that's what good people do, but the actual sweet experience of knowing forgiven sin. That sweetness is for people who are not trying to live a religious life. Now finally here, number six. We're going to distill this message of this trial down to its roots. Christianity is a message to be believed. Christianity is a message to be believed. What's in, uh, this happens in every trial Paul's a part of, right? He's the one on trial, but he starts asking questions. He's, he's the interrogator here. And look at verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. He's, he's on the attack. <laughs> verse 28, Paul, uh, Agrippa takes a dodge. Then Agrippa said to Paul, blah, blah, blah. that's not in the text, but it's in the, it's in the Greek. Bah, 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 bah. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, I don't care how long it takes, short time or long. I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, well, except for these chains. Uh, what is Paul? He's a servant and a witness. I wonder what you are. I can ask you the same question Paul asked Agrippa. Do you believe? Do you believe this message? Do you believe that what Paul is describing here is true and that what he offers is genuine? And on the basis of what you believe, what will you become? What what are you? This is what Jesus has commissioned us to be, servants and witnesses. You don't have any chains like Paul. You have the same calling, servants and witnesses. This is your defining reality. There is no change in your life that you can make that would be greater than this call that Jesus has issued for you to believe and be a servant and witness. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, when we had people sign the membership book, uh, I asked Joel Mindler. Joel Mindler was up here signing the book, and uh, I asked her. She at the time they've been married a month, Jeff and Joel. And I said to Joel, "Is it do you, you signing the right name? <laughs> Don't sign your maiden name. Sign the right name, as you." So it's transition. It's hard to do. Some of you, next year, you'll be writing 2015 on your checks in July. Okay, so it's hard to, hard to write new things. I remember the first time that I went to the grocery store to buy diapers. Huh. I was so self-conscious of this, of uh, buying diapers. I had to buy newborn diapers. It was about this week, 13 years ago. Claire, it's 13 today and, and I, I carried these newborn diapers up and put them on the, 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 the stand the, the, and, and the cashier's checking them out and I thought, oh, here we go. I'm buying diapers for the first time. I can't believe this. The cashier did not care at all that I was buying diapers. <laughs> not care at all. I wanted to say to the cashier, don't you know what this means? I got a baby at home. A baby. Can you believe that? Do you know what that means? Come to find out, I had no idea what that means. My whole world is being turned upside down. They can't believe it. But, oh, this change, this change is greater by far. Darkness to light. A servant and a witness. This is what Paul was. This is what Jesus has called you to become. It is a calling worth suffering for. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we have read this text and we see these truths pounded, pounded, pounded by Luke into our minds. Apparently, you by your spirit through the pen of Luke had little confidence in our ability to absorb it as we should. Or we forget it. We forget these things that we suffer for in this hostile world. As the hostility increases, dear Jesus, we pray that you would help us to remember we are no threat to the state. We're living in light of the arc of history, the truth toward which it is bending, that you are the great King of kings and Lord of lords, and all kingdoms will become yours. Lord, I, I, I pray for us, and as, as I echo Paul's words, his desire that all of us would be just like he is, except for the chains, servants and witnesses. Make that true in our congregation. Make it true of all of us. We pray according to your kindness. Together in Jesus' name, saying, Amen.